Thanks for tuning into the ES First podcast. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. So take a minute to hop on over and give us a like or a follow. And of course, if you're ever in Excelsior Springs, stop on by. We can't wait to welcome you home. God is inviting us into a relationship. And so that's what the book of John is doing. And so as we've started off, we're only just getting through chapter one. So I encourage you as we're going through this to read the book of John. Sit down and read it. When you're thinking about, I wish I could read the Bible, but I don't know where to start. Sit down and read the book of John. If you're like, well, I'm through with John. What do I do now? Read the book of John. So last year, I only read four chapters of the Bible in my quiet time. If I wasn't preparing for a a sermon or studying, whatever, when I was just reading like an average Joe person who doesn't preach for a living, when I was just reading to get to know God, I felt like God told me, I want you to only read John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, period. And I read them all year long. Now, what happens is if you're kind of like me, you're like, God, is there something else we can do? Yeah, can, we, can we get to a different chapter? You know, can we maybe, can we, can we, can we read James? You know, Jimmy's got some stuff to say. You know, can we read Timothy? I know Tim's a good guy. You know, like, and he's like, no, I want you to just stick right there, 14, 15, 16, and 17. What happens when you do that is that you get so familiar with something rather than just going, oh, I read that. Let's go on to something else. What you get is you get intimate with things. You can know where the words are. It's like your drive home, right? You know what it feels like. You know where things are. And when something changes, you go, that's different. That's new. And what happens for us, when we begin to look at the word of God, we begin to know God inside and out in a specific set of verses. And so I'd love for you to do that, especially as we go through John. And I'm going to talk about some stuff and you're going to be like, ah, I've read that. I remember that. And then you're going to know where I'm going when I'm talking about certain things. You'd be like, ah, he's going to get to this next thing. And whatever that is for your life, I pray that you grow in it. And you aren't a product person who's like, well, you know, I just wish I could get something out of the Bible, but I get nothing. Here is me holding your hand walking you through this book. And if you read it over and over and over again, I guarantee you, you'll find life and life more abundantly. So we're going to go to John chapter two, verse one. We're going to read it and then we'll get started. Okay, here we go. Third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And just like a potter boy, he said, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind he used by Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of gallons, okay? Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum, and his mother and brothers and sisters and his disciples, there they stayed for a few days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We know it's powerful and effective. We know that it works. We've experienced it. Lord, but sometimes we're not so certain. Sometimes we doubt, and we know that if you said it, we can believe it. And you said that it would matter to our lives, that it would divide deep in between the places where we're trying to figure out, is that you? Is that me? Whatever we're deciding on today, I pray that your word would be clear, that we would hear from you. And this sermon, these words would spark a relationship and your presence would become real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that success is in the details. So, when it comes to trying to figure out how to be successful, it's all about the little things. And there's tons of books and self-help and all that stuff. And one of the books is entitled Make Your Bed, like which seems really stupid to spend $25 on a book that just the title is Make Your Bed. And they have to take all of these pages to convince you to make your bed in the morning. And some people are like, well, duh, I always make my bed. But if you're like me, I didn't like to make my bed. And my mom taught me that if you lay in the bed, Brandon, you can pull it up to your neck and then slide out and then it's made. She tried everything to get me to make my bed when I was a kid. And me being somewhat of a perfectionist is either just leave it in shambles and be like, ah, that's cool. Or to like meticulously go over it. And I had a problem. I was like, surely my mom cannot think that this bed is made like this. Like I'm sneaking out and I, go, I look back and it just looks like somebody laid there. It looks like another mess, but I'm even more ticked off because I attempted and it wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. Anybody else like this? Your OCD is kicking in. It's like, it's clean, but it's not as clean as I want it to be. If somebody else cleaned it and it's done and I could just go on, but then I go back and I clean it again. Like the person who cleans their house before the house cleaner comes over. You're paying somebody and you're doing their job. Because you don't want your details to be revealed. It's hard for us to really dive into the details because they usually reveal to us who we are. And success is like this in our lives. The more that we're into the details, the more successful we'll be. When you're studying finance, like I went to one particular job and they wanted to make me the head of their online sales program. And they said, Now, when you balance your checkbook, get this, checkbook, do you just round up or do you balance every penny? And me being smart enough to see this coming from Milo, I said, well, of course, I balance every penny in my checkbook. And then I said, if I had a checkbook. But I didn't say that out loud. When it comes down to life, we're in these details. And so adding up every penny matters, figuring out how to be successful with our time and having a zero-sum balance of our time and our agenda and all that matters. When it comes to your relationships, the details matter. A good friend actually knows the details of your life. They don't just say hi to you. They don't just kind of pass over stuff. They know where you were in the third grade. They knew where they met you at. They know what you were like when the worst things happen to you. They can tell you how you look when you're absolutely doing nothing. Like you always do that when you're doing nothing, right? They can tell you the way you you put your hair behind your ear. They can tell when you're fake smiling and real smiling because they're into the details, because the details matter. And so when it comes to this story, my whole life, I was like, why is this story in the Bible other than we want to just like talk about how great wine at a wedding is? You know, like what's the point of this 
story and what God began to show me throughout my life is, Brandon, God is concerned about the details of your life. Why is it such a big deal? God's raising people from the dead and Jesus is walking around and healing people of leprosy, feeding the 5,000 when they had nothing more to eat. We have all of these great stories and it's like, oh yeah. And one time they were at a wedding and the wine ran out and we would go big whoop, right? My coffee ran out this morning and I was like, hey, if somebody could go get me another one, that would be great because I like to be jittery when I'm speaking. But boo-hoo is not that big a deal. Get over it, Brandon. And we go to this wedding and it's like, oh, the wine ran out and Jesus's mother gets involved. And you're thinking, why is this such a big deal? Except for that God is showing that he cares about the details. Have you forgotten that God cares about the details of your life? Have you just kind of skipped over that? As a matter of fact, I often talk about how the American church has just become so well adjusted to having success for themselves that they don't rely on God for the details anymore. We're so well off in so many different areas. We just go, well, I don't want to bother God. People come to me and like, well, yeah, I got this thing. And I'm like, well, God can fix that. And they're like, no, I don't want to bother God. There's children starving in Africa. You're like, what about my problems and how I feel? Just get over it because God doesn't care. But God is trying to tell you he cares for the details of your life. And so when this story comes up, what happens is they all go to this wedding. Now, a Jewish wedding, like for us, it's like we go for a couple hours and like we're looking for the exit point, right? Okay, when's a good time to leave? If we really like the person, then we're like, ah, you know, we're going to stay all the way till the end. And then you get to where you're like, ah, you know, you guys have been drunk dancing for three hours and I think I'm over this. My babysitter is another $20 per hour. Hello. And you're just like, is this really worth another 60 bucks to sit here? So we're always looking for a way out. But in Jewish culture, a wedding was something that's to be celebrated. As a matter of fact, if your daughter was getting married, what you would do is you would have a week-long festival. Some say it's three days, but if you study Jewish culture, they're having seven-day weddings, right? Not just the bride's dress is amazing and we're going to have dinner. Are we going to have just hors d'oeuvres? We're going to have plated dinners. Like how much is that going to cost? And the father of the bride's sweating over in the corner. What is all of this going to be? Imagine that for seven days straight. Everybody's going to come to your house and they're not trying to figure out how to get home. They're trying to figure out how to have a party. They come to your house and they are ready to rock. And they start off the first day and then the second day and along about the third day, you finally get married. And there's no like trips to Cancun for your honeymoon. Like you go consummate the marriage and then you come back to the party. You are hanging out seven days straight, food, water, wine, lodging, everything is at your house seven days. And so this idea of running out of wine is not just like, oh, it's cool, they're going to go home. This idea of running out of wine is a big deal because it reflects kind of poorly on the bride and the groom's parents. Right? We didn't plan well. We weren't wealthy enough. We didn't have it all together. And they go out and the wine runs out and somehow Mary catches word of it. Now Mary, blessed little Mary, standing there, And she goes and finds her son. She's like, I'll take care of this. And she walks and finds Jesus like, hey, the wine's out. 
they're out of wine. And Jesus is, I don't know if he's annoyed or not, but he calls his mom woman. He says, woman. I don't know if he's annoyed or not. Maybe he's just like, woman. Whoa, maybe it was woe man. Whoa, man. And he says, why are you involving me, bro? Right? In which some mothers, if you call them bro, it's worse than woman. But he says, why are you involving me? And he says something that's kind of pivotal. He goes, my time has not yet come. In other words, I've lived these 30 years and I haven't done a miracle yet. I haven't done anything spectacular. People don't know who I am. I've called the disciples and they caught lots of fish and that was pretty cool. And I guess those are little miracles, but like my time hasn't come for me to really like be revealed to everyone, for everyone to notice who I am. And you'll find out when you read the other gospels that Jesus, for probably the first year of his ministry, is trying to keep everybody quiet about who he is. He even tells demons, like demons are like coming out of people. Ah! And he's like, hey, shut up. Don't tell them who I am. He's like, my time has not yet come. And being a good mother, she ignores him. And she walks over to the servants of the wedding. He says, hey, you servants. <laughs> now you can imagine like the wedding staff, they're here to serve everybody else. And she gives them a detour directive. What she says is, hey, this guy right here, I know you don't know him. He's a good guy. He's my son. I love him very much, okay? Whatever he tells you to do, do that. And I can imagine there's a little bit of tension. This is my job. My job is to serve. In those days, maybe if you didn't serve properly, you lost all of your livelihood. You Maybe you died. Who knows exactly what happens when you don't serve well. But they all risk it to follow Jesus' direction. So two things happen. One, Mary pulls Jesus into a moment that he didn't want to be involved in. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to just like, and you're going to lay it awake at night. Jesus wasn't ready to do a miracle and Mary made him. I mean, I have, ah, my, Jesus's mom is like my mom. You're going to be stewing over this. There's no sure answer. But what I do know is this, is that Mary, and I don't think that she's holy Mary. I mean, she is holy like you and I are holy. I don't think that she is sinless Mary. I don't think that she is God herself. I don't worship Mary, but I honor her. And I think that she's an amazing woman. You'd have to be to raise Jesus, right? I mean, you'd have to be to lose Jesus because she lost him in the middle of Jerusalem and took her three days to figure out he was gone. Um, Bless your heart, Mary. That's how we know you're not perfect. But here's what we know is that Mary is so convinced of who Jesus is and his heart and who he is that she says, hey, you need to do something about this wine. And she's this is like, no, why are you involving me? And she doesn't give it another thought. She starts organizing the plan. Well, we're just going to do this because Jesus is going to take care of this and he's going to get some wine. And I don't know what she had in mind, but, you know, it's like some people like, you can do it. 
and they just like load a bunch of work on you and they don't even know how it's going to be done or what, it, how it works or, or how it all comes to be. They just know that you're going to be able to do it. And Mary's like, Hey, that guy right there, he's going to tell you what to do. She didn't know that it was going to be water into wine moment. Jesus is the one that said to them, go and get those water pitchers. Now we're talking about clay pots of 20 or 30 gallons. You thought your crab broil pot was big? We're talking about concrete. Six of these suckers filled with water. And they were big enough, they were for ceremonial washing. In other words, you could wash yourself up to go to church in them. Ceremonial washing. You would get clean in these suckers. One of my friends said, Jesus didn't take, Jesus didn't take bath water and turn it into grape juice. He turned it into wine. And so for our lives, here's Jesus. He's looking at these servants who are just doing what Mary has requested of Jesus. She's not special. I mean, she's Jesus' mom. I mean, that's pretty special. She's not like some kind of like divinely come down from heaven person. She's not absolutely perfect. She's not sinless. But she sees a moment where she is going to test who Jesus is based on what she knows about him. And so for us, our lives are us just kind of going, well, I don't want to bother Jesus with that. Jesus can't really do anything about that. I mean, Jesus is here for the big things. But I'm here to let you know that Jesus is here for the details of your life. And if you don't know him, you won't ever come to him with the details of your life. You won't come with him to the mundane things that mean nothing to nobody else. I mean, what's so bad if the wine runs out? We're already drunk. It's at the end of the party. It's the end of the the thing. And they like weirded out that this is the best wine. Why didn't we have this first? But Mary knew that she could pull on who Jesus was into a situation that is really just mundane. It's just normal. And there's enough of us that are walking around that won't pull on Jesus into a moment. We're like the rest of the party. We're just hanging out, doing whatever. And if it runs out, it's fine. Oh no, it must have been God's will that all the wine ran out. And Mary says, no, Jesus cares about your details. I love this story because it shows me that I'm just regular like Mary. Did you know that in Acts chapter 2, that when everybody else was praying for the Holy Spirit to come down and to baptize them in the Holy Ghost, did you know who was the first person in line in the upper room? Mary. And if you read the Christmas story, she's like, hey, you're going to be with a child. And she's like, I don't know if I'm going to be with a child. I've never been with a man. And the angel says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. She'd already had this anointing of the Holy Spirit, but she wasn't satisfied. Why? Because her humanity made her hunger for the holiness of God. And so when she comes and she taps into who Jesus is, it's not because she's just hoping, winging a prayer, throw something against the ceiling. What she is doing is she's coming and interacting with the divine nature of God. And if you don't learn how to interact with the divine nature of God, you won't see God in your life like you want to. And you'll be the kind of person who just walks around going, well, you know what? It must have been God's will. But God does what he does. I mean, whatever God does, who knows? Who can say what God's going to do? 
And then we wrap it up in this. When we have the, the worst situations, we go, oh no, God is in control. And God keeps asking you, pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because God's will is done in heaven. It's not always done in earth. And God will only be in control of what you'll let him be in control of. Here's why. I know that. Because there's some people in your life that are not saved. And God says, I'm willing that everybody would be saved and none would go to hell. And there's some people that are blatantly choosing to go to hell. And we go, oh, well, that's God's will. And he blatantly says, no, it's not. I want to interact. I want to do great things in your life. I think if he could sit down, he would show you all the details of your life that he is so enthralled with, that he is talking about. I love the way you look when you're doing nothing. I remember when you were just sitting out by the fire, just looking at the stars, thinking about these moments. And it just, it amazes me the kind of person you are. You're the apple of my eye. I cherish you so much. He starts talking about how he's written you on the palm of his hands. And he starts talking about everything he is to you because he is in the details of your life. But here's the deal. You won't tap into it. You think Mary can, but you can't. Things have to get to a certain level of misery for you to really tap into who Jesus is. Just the way we are. But God wants to have this relationship. How do I know that? Because he sent Jesus. He didn't have to send Jesus. He was interacting with children of Israel, Adam and Eve. I mean, Daniel, he was interacting with people all the time. Why did he send Jesus? Because he wants to be connected to you. And that doesn't mean he just wants to get you to heaven. He wants to be interacting with the details of your life. Say amen to that. So she looks over to the servants. She says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She just knows it's going to be fixed. It may be the long way around. It may be today. It may be tomorrow. Who knows? But Jesus is going to fix it. Same thing. My mom has a technical issue at home. She comes like, my TV won't work. My internet's down. She doesn't have a clue where it comes from. She just knows that Brandon can fix it. So I point her to Amazon. You say, get an order these nine things. These eight things are going to go to my house. And this one is for your TV. It's just sun tax. You know what I mean? It's just a tax. Mary says to Jesus, do you involving me? And she walks away. Says, I'm not going to. My time's not come. Why are you involving me? And she walks away. And she looks to the servants, he looks to the servants, and he says, go and get me some pitchers of water. Six of them were sitting there. Six of them were sitting there. And the servants had other things to do. They had a party to attend to. I'm sure that they had, you know, plates to clean up and food to prepare. I mean, this busyness. These servants are made for this wedding. They are there to do this job. And Jesus sends them, my mom would call, a wild goose chase to go get some water. And they come back bringing these stone pots and who knows how many people it took to carry them. They come in, there, that's what we got. There's the water. And Jesus doesn't like stick his finger in it. He doesn't test it or whatever. He just goes, go and serve that water to the, the host. Now, in a time where if you serve the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time, it's off with their heads. Like, I don't know, I would be so really into just walking up there with some water and be like, hey, try this. <laughs> Jesus says it's good. 
So we're talking about the faith here, okay? The servants come and they interact with who Jesus is. And I can just imagine the joy on their face when the first sip is taken by the host and he... And he does the test and everybody's just on the edge of their seat, maybe looking and all the servants are looking. And he's like, it's great. And then he goes on this whole speech. He doesn't just go, this is good. It's so good. He goes, this is the best wine. It's the best wine. And everybody else does it first. And the worst wine is what we serve at the end. But for some reason, this host has decided that the best is going to be saved for last. And it started with some servants that were willing to walk out something Jesus had said, even if they didn't see it. And most of us, when we have to serve Jesus like that, when kind of our lives are on the line, we start complaining about servanthood. Why are we the only ones? Why is it getting down? Where's everybody else at? Why didn't they plan better? Why didn't they buy more wine? You got us out here doing all this extra work. And most of us are like, you know, we used to sing these songs when I was a kid. Jesus, use me. Oh, Lord, don't refuse me. Surely there's a work that I can do for this week, but not the rest of my life. Surely I can, I can do something that I love, make my favorite dish and take it to someone's house and bless them. But I don't want to be like a servant. I don't want to be like, you know, in the thick of what it takes to really serve. We just want to bless someone. And here, these servants are willing to do whatever Jesus asks them to do. It's a stupid idea to go and get water and serve it to the host. But Jesus said to, your friends may not understand it. The other guests may not understand it. Even the people working beside you may not understand it. You're going to serve God like that? Yeah. But God didn't call you to be a servant. Did you know that? He called you to be a son and a daughter. And this is where most people get this messed up because they go, oh yeah, I'm a part of the family of God. And our idea of family is, well, they didn't clean up their stuff. I'm cleaning up their stuff. But we adopt the family of God. We get adopted into the family of God. And then we go, well, yeah, this is great. We're part of the family. But these ideas, these tensions within our natural family, we've taken into the family of God. We're a son and we're a daughter, but we don't understand servanthood. When in that time period, a son and a daughter served well and then inherited well. They had a certain access. If you look at the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes back, the one that was sinning, the father is overjoyed. He's like, my son was dead and now he's alive and he comes back. Now there's the other son. The other son comes in and is like, well, I've been here and I've never left. I didn't go away and squander all my inheritance. I didn't sin away my life. I was here doing the thing. Where's my party? Where's my robe? Where's my ring? Why does he get everything? Because he had been serving his father. He was a servant and a son. 
And what the father tells him is he says, son, you are my son and everything that I've had has been yours the entire time. And so in serving, we don't see what sonship we have because we're not willing to tap into the nature of who God is like Mary. We just want to be servants who complain. My dad, we used to golf a lot, you know, and I worked for my dad. People say, well, how is that working for your dad? I said, well, we're father and son, but I serve him well. I think, you know, my passion is to serve him well. I remember him telling somebody once, and I didn't really realize this. We just did it. Me and Johnny would go golfing and we would carry my dad's golf bag. And he was well able to carry his golf bag. He wasn't a cripple by any means. We would pull his golf bag out of his thing and said, you need these shoes? You need this coat? What else you need? You need your wallet out of the car? What else you need? And he was capable of doing that. He did that by himself all the time. He golfed with other people, whatever. When my older brother showed up, God, God bless him. He'd get out of his car, grab his golf bag, and walk off. Dad's standing there. And we're all standing there with Dad. Because for us, it's a chance to connect with our father. And we pull out his golf bag and we put it down and all that stuff. And then if there's no golf cart near, then we carry his golf bag. We're carrying two golf bags. And that's the most awkward thing on planet Earth. Like carrying two golf bags and ba-dang, 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 ba-dang. And we walk it all the way up. And I heard my dad one time tell somebody, he said, you notice how Brandon and Johnny always carry my golf bag? I don't have to touch it. They put it in the trunk of the car. They pull it out. They make sure I have my shoes. They make everything. They serve me. They're my sons, but they serve me. And there's no limit to what I could ask for them to do. I can carry my own golf bag. I do it all the time. Somebody else walks away, and they don't even care if you even make it. But my sons honor me by serving me. And sometimes in our servitude, we get so bitter about ourselves. Never once did I pick up my dad's golf bag and go, you know what? He should really be doing this by himself. I mean, how old is he? He's 68 years old. I mean, when is a 68-year-old going to carry their own stuff? I mean, come on. I served with everything I had for my father. There's sometimes I got it completely wrong. But my heart was, how can I serve you better because, not because he was my boss at the other place, or I had all these other bosses that I served, kind of. But I wanted to serve my dad because I had sonship. I desired, I knew what that relationship meant. I knew what it meant for him, for me to bless him with the fruits of my labor, with the work I was doing, and how I was carrying his bag. And I was looking for opportunities to give him what he needed, wanted, honor him in the same way that he honored me. And most people don't have that relationship with God. They just complain about serving. God used me. I wish I could do something. I wish I could go to Morocco. I wish I could be a missionary. I wish God would use me to preach. It's like before you actually preach on the stage, have you ever learned how to clean it? Like, they don't know what that means. I wish I could sing. I wish they'd let me up there. It's like, have you learned how to serve? Have you ever cleaned the toilet at the church? 
No. One thing I like to do, people say, I want to be in the ministry. I say, okay, cool. Come in here. This is a, a scrubber. This is spray. Well, I've never noticed before. Well, Jesus invites you. Why? Because learning how to serve is bigger than lights and smoke and loud music. It's bigger than getting to record a sermon and post it to Facebook. Anybody can start a podcast and talk about Jesus. Where does the power come from? It comes from relationship. And the relationship is always a tension of servitude and sonship. And most people get so bitter in serving that they never get to enjoy sonship because they don't realize it's one and the same. So Jesus asked these guys, he says, go get those jars of water. Now, he gets six jars of water. Bam, 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 bam. Theologians as far back as Augustine and before, point, and Augustine, we're talking about after the first church. So they're like in 200 and 300 AD. And they begin talking about Jesus in these deep ways. And they begin studying the Bible. They actually remove themselves from Rome and go out in the middle of nowhere and just start studying the Bible day in and day out. They have monasteries. This is where the ideas of monks came from. It's where the Catholic church gets the idea for nuns and fathers to be removed from the world the early, early church. And Augustine begins to write, he's like, these six jars represent these dispensations up to Jesus. And dispensations is a big word. It's a, what it means is order. It means how things are working. And if we go back to the dispensations, the first way, the order that God had set up was this way that he was going to interact with his people. It's the way that he had decided that I'm going to be involved with humanity. And so the first order, the dispensation, is that God is going to interact with Adam and Eve. And he creates humanity. And what does he do? He breathes his presence into them. And Adam comes to life. And he interacts and talks in the cool of the day. And they have a great life together, Adam and Eve. And the Bible says that he created them in his own image, male and female. He created them. And here they are. And it's like the first jar. And the second jar is they sinned. And so how is God going to interact if he can't interact with sin? And so he interacts with them in conscience. And how he speaks to their heart, even though they're not as close as he would like them to be, he speaks to their conscience. And then comes human government. And they have like this way that the world is kind of set up around the time of Babel. And kingdoms are established and they have human government, but God is interacting with kings and he's interacting with rulers and authorities. And this is the way he operates until Abraham. This is after Noah and the flood and everybody else. Abraham comes and God's like, I'm not satisfied with that. What I want to do is I want to interact with people one-on-one. And so he calls Abraham and says, go to a place I will show you. And Abraham says, okay. And so he leaves his family. He's in the middle of the area of Iraq, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he comes all the way to the Mediterranean. And this is a time when traveling is not really all that conducive. He packs up his family. He packs up his herds and his cattle, and they would travel, and they would put up tents, and he is interacting with God. And God puts Abraham to sleep, much like Adam. And he says, I'm going to interact with you. I'm going to make a promise to you that I will be with you. And he makes a promise on himself. So God basically says, I swear to God 
that I'm going to be with you. And he makes a promise and he makes the covenant himself because he knows Abraham is not able to keep this promise. And that is the other dispensation of promise until after Egypt. And then all the Israelites say, hey, you know, we want God to come and talk to us. And God comes down in a whirlwind like thunder and lightning and all this stuff. They all get freaked out. Ah! They fall to their face and they go, no, we don't want to talk to God. He's too scary. And they say, Moses, you go talk to God and you tell us what he says. And they say, whatever the Lord says to do, we'll do it. And they separate themselves from God. They would rather have a list of rules. And so what God gives them is the Ten Commandments and the law. And this law is how that they are supposed to be in right standing with God. When actually before that, the covenant with Abraham was way better. It was just a promise. God was like, I know you can't keep it, so I'll keep it. We'll be cool. It'll be a good promise, right? I like those kind of promises. And they're like, you know, whatever God says to do, that's what we'll do. And he says, okay, you want to know what it takes to be close to me and to do what I want done? These are the things. And he begins to separate and say, I am so holy. And this is what it takes to be close to me. And if you want to be close to me, there's no way that you can keep all of these things. And so you're going to have to sacrifice a lamb every year to cover the sins of your people, of your household. And in that, you'll be in right standing with me. Now, this law goes all the way from Exodus all the way through the Old Testament. And the sixth dispensation is when everything gets kind of fun. It is the dispensation of grace. It's a new order. It's how God wants to interact with you. And he doesn't say here, if you have a good conscience, if you have good leadership, if we make a promise, if you follow all the law, what he begins to say is this grace will be based on Jesus. It'll be based on my payment for who you are. And I'm going to interact with you based on this guy. Whatever he says, whatever he tells you to do, do that. And you're going to live in this new place. And what he does is the sixth dispensation, the sixth order, the new way God is working is he takes all of the ordinary, all of the average, all of the water pots, and he turns them into the sweetest wine you could ever taste. He turns into the most amazing thing. And everybody goes, wow, why are we saving the best for last? Because Jesus is the best for last. So what happens in our life is we adopt an old way of thinking when Jesus has given us the new way. Mary begins to show you. The servants live it out. But we are working on a very limited amount of resources from what God wants. He wants you to serve out of sonship. And what you want to do is serve out of obligation. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, okay, we'll do it. And I've heard people preach this, and there's a time and place for whatever Jesus tells you to do, go and do it. You probably need to hear that too. But if you don't hear it in the proper context that God is inviting you into who he is, that his divine purposes create this place for you to join him and to live in perfect 
peace, to live in perfect supply, to live life and life more abundantly, to live in prosperity, to live in wholeness, to live unbitter, hello, to let it go and to forgive, to live at a higher level. What he is saying is like all of the past have had these issues. All of the past, it was just basic water, but I'm giving you the sweetness of heaven. Did you know that even the cheapest wine that you buy at the CVS takes about two years to make? I was listening to somebody talk about this. He owned a vineyard. And so he was talking about what it took to really make wine. He's like, even the cheapest wine, even the junk that you just, you know, it's a $5 a bottle. It's $10 a bottle. It's just the stuff that you wouldn't even think is worth buying as a wine connoisseur. It takes a good amount of time to make. He says, and we know that as it gets older, the process that happens is so valuable. It creates value in a bottle that sits in someone's basement. That they would invest in things that they'll just hold on to. So imagine the wine at this wedding. You know, you start off with the best. How long did it take to make? Two years? Three years? How long have it been sitting around? Maybe this father started when his daughter was just a little girl. This is the wine for my my daughter's wedding and I'm going to make it and we're going to keep it and it's going to be perfect for when the wedding comes and maybe it's 12, 13, 14, 20 years and along comes this wedding and they're all like wow this is really good wine and as good as your man-made efforts can be as good as you're like well I'm going to try and we're going to get this worked out for God We're going to like be successful and have all our dreams come true. This is the life we always wanted. And it's like you're making wine for something to happen. And you serve it. People go, wow, this is a really great party. Jesus comes in. And Jesus takes the regular things. I know you've been hurt right here. Put it in the jar. I know that things didn't really work out the way you wanted to. I know that you had all these boxes and stuff fit into your boxes, but they... It's just chaos. Put that in the jar. And it begins to take steps and places in your life. And he lines them all up. They're all the ways that God has interacted and been a part of your life. He says, but here comes this last one. It's the way I want to interact with you from now on. And he takes all the little things. He's like, bring it all to me. Lay it all down. And he begins to just change them from ordinary to miraculous. And what took people years to develop in the natural to the best wine, Jesus in a second changes it to a vintage like you've never tasted. It is the sweetness of grace. It is God's interaction in your life with his son. He says, this is the way that I want to be with you and me. 
Mary, maybe you gave you an an idea of what might be possible. The servants might have given you an idea of what's possible. Like these stories about who Jesus is. I hope you're realizing God is saying that I am in the details of your life. You're running out and I'm just transforming. You're giving up and I'm taking the mundane and making it wonderful. You want to quit and I'm going to give you life and life more abundantly. You're settling down and I'm going to make the last of your days the best of your days. You've thought that it's over and there's nothing more that can happen. And God says, I've got more for you than you dreamed. We're just getting started. It's the sweetness of heaven. Well, must be what God wanted. He's in control. He says, no, bring me what you have. Bring me your ordinary. Offer it to me again and see what I've had in mind all along. Bow your heads and close your eyes and let the word of God speak to you. It's his word for you. I want to change your life. I want the sweetness of heaven to rain down in your heart, your mind. I want it to fill the broken places. I want to interact with you in a new way and I'm taking things and I'm accelerating them. I'm moving them. What should take years, decades. It's going to become the impossible in your life. And people will rejoice and shout and know that God's glory is revealed in you. But you, I want you to realize that God has called you son and daughter. And as you serve him, It's not out of obligation. It's out of this great relationship that as you lay down the things that are just regular and ordinary, it's because God doesn't want something from you. He wants the best for you. You don't understand it, why things turned out, why it went this way, and you got questions. God says, bring them to me. I'll turn it into wine. You're trying to paint it all out. You're laying in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, going, why why is this God? Who are you? I don't even know you anymore. And he says, you're right. You don't know me. Step into this relationship. I'll turn it into the sweetest wine. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your very souls. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy and light. I will give you newness. Today, if you need this newness, would you just raise a hand? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of these people who raise their hand right now. Just like Mary, that are willing to step into relationship, that are willing to test you on who you are and say, I know this guy, he's got more for me. God, I pray that your anointing, your power, your supernatural presence would overwhelm them, that you would show them who you are. And then in their serving, And they're doing the grunt work and they wouldn't forget. They wouldn't forget that it's your sweetness that is filling their life. It's a new way you desire to work this way. And anybody else who tells them otherwise, even the enemy himself, say, yeah, God doesn't love you. God's not connected to you. Be silenced. And they would understand a real relationship with the darling of heaven, Jesus. Father, do great and mighty things which we do not know, we cannot understand, and have not yet imagined. 
according to your grace and dispensation in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hug somebody next to you. Kiss them if you know them like that. Or if you want to go like that, kiss them. <laughs>